10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Qatar, this is The Morning Break with Dorian Brown. Good morning, Team TTR. Welcome to the Friday morning break, the start to the end of your week. I'm Dorian Brown. It is Friday the 29th of April and we are broadcasting live from the Teachers Talk Radio Lighthouse. Today, as we continue to navigate the path out of the global pandemic, we're asking what can we do to glue our fragmented communities back together? And how can service learning be a vehicle for this? Call or text in, let's talk this out. Live from Qatar, this is the morning break with Dorian Brown on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. The very best of mornings to you. Thank you for joining me this morning on Teachers Talk Radio for what for many may have felt like the proverbial bucket of cold water over the head as the first week since returning from the Easter holidays comes to an end. We are at the business end of the year and our exam groups really now have become our biggest priority and we... You know, in fact, actually, we become more needed than our exam groups have ever actually needed us before. Um, I am buoyed by the fact, actually, that we do have exams back, although, uh, you know, there has been a large amount of debate and discussion about terminal assessment models. I think, you know, all things weighed up. I think, you know, I'm with those that say, you know, they are the best at this moment in time from a uh, a mediocre selection of other options, I suppose. Um, and until convincing alternatives are, are tabled and, and, and our systems in place already are convinced of their efficacy, um, it, should be, it should really be business uh, as, it, as it was, as you say. Um, anywho, following on from three years of, I guess, what you would call or describe broken teaching and learning and, and a cloud of uncertainty over how the world is going to go forward and how or, or if... We will settle down to whatever form of normality is to come. There has been plenty of opportunity for us to to reflect upon the purpose of education, uh, as discussed last week. Also, what the future of education might look like. Now, one thing that I've actually tussled with myself since returning to the classroom full time is thinking about how we can reconnect teachers, students, uh, parents uh, and, and wider community members following this kind of sustained time of, of, of isolation. How can we rebuild those relationships that have been fragmented in, in, in a large uh, sense? Um, I would actually like to posit that something like service learning, which I have uh, hosted a number of shows on uh, in the past, uh, this can be the vehicle which can sort of build and, and, and rebuild bridges and connections with each other and our community. And that, that human kind of face-to-face uh, action um, has the potential and the capacity to warm all involved and, and, and you know, get, bring people together, essentially. Now, before I forget, Susie's word of the day is ultracrepidarian from the 19th century, and that means one who loves to hold forth on subjects they know absolutely nothing about. I'm sure we all know an ultracrepidarian personally, and there are plenty of them out there in all sorts of jobs, media, politicians, perhaps, etc. The Dunning-Kruger effect very much, I think, comes to mind here. Now, my guest today is certainly not an ultracrepidarian when offering his thoughts and ideas on today's topic. 
I'm delighted to have joining me here in the Teachers Talk Radio studio, Jabiz Raizdana, who has experienced service learning in a number of countries, cultures and contexts throughout his career. And he currently teaches in Singapore, where, you know, amongst you know, the rest of the world, lockdowns, restrictions and online learning have impacted students' health and well-being. I'm going to ask Jabiz to talk about his service learning experiences and how, in his opinion, we can go about building a greater sense of community moving forward. Before we do that, though, as always, let's have a quick word from Steve Woods, our tech guru, who will give us some top tips on avoiding these pesky internet scams. Jabiz will join us on the other side. See you in a sec. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this term is known to be one of the hardest. When we're distracted and tired, it's easy to make a mistake and fall for a scam. There are loads of scams out there, but the use of subdomains to give a fake sense of security is one scam that a lot of people fall for. In the interest of keeping you, your family and your friends safe over the next two episodes, I'm going to explain the fake bank message scam and how it can look so believable. First up, we need to discuss how data travels over the internet. If you explore an internet address, let's take Teachers Talk Radio as our example, https www.ttradio.org. There are basically four parts. HTTPS, this is Hypertext Transfer Protocol, with the S standing for secure. Protocols are used for data transfer. The HTTP protocol allows the transmission of HTML or hypertext markup language from a web server to your computer. In basic terms, it lets a web page be requested and viewed. The confusion here is the secure version. Some believe that seeing a site is HTTPS and has a little padlock in the address bar means that you are protected. To some extent, this is true. However, the security certificate for a site simply encrypts or scrambles the transmission. So if it's intercepted, it can't be used. So yes, you are secure from interception but if the owner of a website is dishonest, you're not safe from them. The next three parts are to do with where the web page resides or the address. Like we need a postcode and house number, your computer needs to know where to look for the information you want. WWW is the World Wide Web, a huge network of interconnected networks. TT Radio is the name of the website and .org is the top level domain. Again, simplifying this, .org domains are kept in a kind of phone book that can be accessed by your internet service provider. So to find ttradio.org, .org, tells you to look in the .org phone book for TT Radio and return where the website is for your browser to download it. Why don't you ask your pupils, family and friends what they believe the padlock and HTTPS means? You may be surprised at the answer you receive. Next time, we're going to look at how criminals use this misconception to gain your trust. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Qatar, this is The Morning Break with Dorian Brown. And Jabiz joins us in the studio this morning. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on Teachers Talk Radio, Jabiz. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm humbled and honored to have this conversation. Ah, well, we are equally so to have you on the show. Um, I gave you a little bit of an introduction to you um, in, the, in, the, in the introduction there, but I was just wondering if you could just give our listeners a quick summary of your journey through education up to and including this point. Yeah, I can't believe I've become kind of the, the silver-haired old guy in the corner. <laughs> I just remember being kind of the, the younger person in the room, but that's changed. Uh, I've been in education since about 1999, so a little over 20 years. I started off teaching uh, with the U.S. Peace Corps in Mozambique, uh, and then from there moving to New York City and working up in the Bronx, 
Um, that's before my journey kind of took me overseas in international schools. So been overseas since 2004, um, Malaysia, Qatar, Indonesia, and then Singapore. And so I've been here in Singapore at the United World College East Campus for, wow, I think this is year 10 for me. And that's the uh, longest I've ever lived anywhere, actually, in my entire uh, life. Um, I've taught as young as kind of EAL in the primary uh, elementary school and up to grade 10. But definitely my sweet spot is middle school, grade eight, um, and I do six and seven as well. Oh, English, I teach English as my primary kind of area of uh, subject area. Subject area, fantastic. Well, um, often when I speak to, to, to hosts, actually, I, I think I'm in my fifth, my fifth international school now. Um, not very often do I get beaten. Um, so that sounds like quite a, quite a, 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 a many and varied experience uh, that you've had um, across continents, across countries as well. So, um, yeah, absolutely delighted to, to sort of have you on the show and really kind of get a, a, an understanding really of perhaps how your experiences have shaped your uh, ideas around particularly, well, education in general, but I think we're going to drill down a little bit today and look a little bit more uh, at, uh, at your thoughts on service learning. Um, just before we kind of sort of go sort of kick off into that, um, Jabez has a, a fantastic blog, which I'll put a, um, uh, a link to in the show notes so you can access it at the end. It's the intrepid flame, if that, if I'm not mistaken that's right isn't it uh, and and on the uh, on, on the blog word cloud there i can see you know it, it, it highlights all of the words that you kind of mention uh, frequently or, or most frequently and one of those or in fact the biggest one uh, that uh, appears is community so i wondered if you'd sort of unpack a little bit about why community is so important to you and why you you seem to write about it a lot yeah i guess it's when you first mentioned it i was Kind of detangling in my mind of how to respond. I guess it comes down to two areas of community. Uh, one is this idea of creating a class community within the, the walls of operating as a teacher with the 20 or so students. And I think that is definitely very important um, to my philosophy of education. So I'll unpack that in just a minute. And then I guess the larger rippling communities, kind of concentric circles outside of that, right? So there's the mm the grade level. And then I really do understand and appreciate the community of, of teachers as well, right? Both within yes. the school and how we operate as a, as a functioning team, but also like things like this, right? Communities that develop outside of our campuses and how we exchange ideas and things like that. So I've been a little bit removed, I think, from these online communities. Like you mentioned my blog, I'd be very curious what the last post was. <laughs> uh, and I've gone a bit insular. Uh, not that I don't value this larger community, I still do, but things have changed so much on the internet that it's just, I don't know, those blogging days and even like, what was it, 2013, 14, like seems like a, like a different life, yes, a different yes. way of operating uh, and how the internet has changed. Um, but back to that, that closed community, I think it's really important of creating inclusive, safe spaces where students um, feel connected to each other, connected to the teacher, and in a way that they could take risks and kind of be their true selves. Um, and it's no easy feat. I think it's, it's very optimistic to say that happens in classrooms more often than not, because I'm not sure if that ever happens, even in my own classroom, when and if I'm trying to intentionally do that. So that sense of being seen and accepted for who you are and being able to contribute in your truest way, I think that's ultimately how I see community. And I think that's really, really important to learning. Absolutely. I completely agree. And uh, 
the sort of thing that immediately jumps out from even from that last line that you've just said there really is is it is the importance of kind of building that sense of of belonging that sense of um uh collegiality perhaps in in, in the classes that that you teach and, and and building that trust so how is it that you know and this isn't this is obviously a huge question um perhaps maybe you could give one example but what, what sorts of things do you think find has been successful um as a way to build that sense of community within your within your teaching classes yeah i mean i think the key word you just mentioned it is trust and it's not easy or simple to build trust between human beings right mm, even with sure. with friends and colleagues and family it, it's difficult trust is something that takes time um, it takes effort and so when you're dealing with students who sometimes you see just for you know a couple of months and then one school year and that's it and honestly, they have no reason to really trust us if we think about it, right? Like if we think about the true value, what that means to, to trust another person. Um, personally, I think it's, it's a level of open, honest, honesty and vulnerability. It's I think students need to see us as human beings and not as some kind of authority figure that dictates um, their lives. Although oftentimes we do, you know, as teachers, we do have a sense of control over their academic success or failures. Um, and I think if students see us solely in that role, then you're never going to build that trust. Then you're just a hurdle or an obstacle they need to kind of <laughs> navigate. Um, yes. I call it playing the school game, right? Like figuring out what I need to do in order to get what I need from this person. Mm. And that's not trust. That's not community, right? And I think a lot of times that's how classrooms operate. So there's that sense of how do we kind of get down not get down, how do we get to the same level as the students so they see us as um, fallible, as people who also make mistakes? How do they see us as people who are also struggling with a variety of things? And so I don't mean I'm, you know, you open up your deepest, darkest secrets every day to your <laughs> students, but I think, I just remember when I was a kid, the adults I respected the most in my life were the ones that I felt I could I could understand and I think they, they respected me as a person. So I think a lot of the times that's another word that kind of comes up, honesty, vulnerability, and respect. I really try to kind of respect my students as, as human beings, as people. Yeah. Um, and I think community grows from there. I love that. Fantastic response. And I was sort of scribbling a few words whilst you were saying that as well. And, you know, open conversations. I think, you know, that, you know, that building the, the, the relationship, but, but also an, a, a tricky thing to navigate I think is that kind of that that um definition of of, of boundaries as well um because I think we are you know the, the the experts you know the relationship is is always student teacher isn't it and and we are the experts but we do also want to kind of almost kind of push through a little bit into that um similar level uh when, when we're talking and we're opening ourselves up, but, but not to lose, not to lose the distinction of, of, of what the relationship is in the first place. So I think that's a difficult uh, thing to navigate. Um, and, and maybe that is actually also quite different depending from class to class from age to age as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think for me, what's so challenging is in middle school, particularly as you get up in the higher grades, like grade eight, there's, an inherent adolescent mistrust, right? That there's the yes. shell that comes and there's the closing up of, I don't want so many adults in my life. I don't need people to know who I am. Mm -hmm. And so there is a kind of a deliberate digging 
that yes. needs to happen. Um, and I, I notice when I teach grade six, they're definitely much more open. There's a much more playful yeah. air. Mm. Um, and that trust is, is not as earned, right? They just kind of, it's there. Um, but when you get up to grade eight, it's definitely, um, it takes an effort, but yeah. I think it's worth it. It's I mean, I don't think it's worth it. I know it's worth it. Cause when you connect yeah. to those students, they have so much to offer once they kind of can see you out from behind the wall. I vividly remember being one of those students as well. You know, I knew every, you know, everything, everything I knew. Adults couldn't tell me anything. I knew everything. How those times have changed. Um, so fantastic. And, and just to kind of talk back uh, to, to the blogging aspect as well, it's something that I've also tried to, to, to do a number of times. And actually, it's, it's, it's why I've ended up sort of being doing this show ultimately for, for, for nearly a year now, I think, um, is that multiple failed attempts at kind of keeping, keep a, keep a, keep a blog going. Um, uh, it's, it's very difficult to do. And obviously, as you mentioned, the internet changes and, you know, you've got microblogging and Twitter and, and various different ways and just can't keep, keep track of it and keep hold of it. And there's just so many conversations going on in so many different corners of the internet that, you know, uh, you know, a blog can be a really nice place to kind of put your thoughts down and, and, and it be your reflective space. Um, but I guess f f what's working for me, I suppose, is just being able to kind of in engage in, in, in talk and know that other people as well can can kind of call in and, and, and talk and just listen to, to, to conversations as well, because I think that's something that as teachers, we have quite a, uh, a solid, we, we actually, despite being in, a, in, in institutions with many people, many adults and many children, it can be quite a solitary job as well sometimes, you know, so, so having opening up those channels of communication as you alluded to, kind of have that has the capacity to build the the community. Um, I think a little bit more, and 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 the the wonders of the internet and technology obviously has been able to kind of facilitate that for us. And here's me and Kata talking to you in Singapore as a perfect example of that. Mm. Um, so um, let's uh, now sort of turn uh, our attentions to the, the 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 pandemic. You know, everybody has. Uh, uh, had their experiences uh, during during the pandemic, and they've been many and varied across the world. And and, and some schools I was reading only recently, you know, are, are still very much dealing dealing with with lockdowns. You know, I'm just reading the news today about Shanghai, for example, being in lockdown. Um, uh, and and so it's you know we're definitely not out of it. It's definitely not something that has happened. It is something that is still happening. So I wondered if you could help our listeners. We have a large base of listeners in the UK, but also um, a, a number of international listeners as well. So I wondered if you could kind of uh, open up a little bit and tell us how teaching during the pandemic has impacted you um, and the students that you work with. Um, and, and rather than just kind of just focus on the challenges, because I think we all kind of share the collective challenges, what were the kind of pockets of positivity that, uh, you know, linked to that idea of building that community strength, which you referred to earlier? Yeah, I think it's hard to try to bemoan or, you know, I think it's important that you put your own experiences into the context of other people. So what may have felt radically challenging or difficult and you hear someone else's story like, oh my gosh, we actually had it really good. Yes. You know, so it's hard to know where you stand in it. I think for us here in Singapore, um, we've been relatively lucky. Uh, we had, you know, in the early days, a pretty severe lockdown, I think it was 11 weeks or something like that, where we didn't see our kids and everything was remote. And um, mm -hmm. I'll talk about some of the positives of that experience. But that took us, I think, from like that early 2000, I don't even remember the years, March, whatever the year was into the summer. <laughs> 2020, I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's all a bit back, of a blur. <laughs> 
we had, you know, there was masks and bubbles and things like that, but pretty much we've been okay since then. So um, you were speaking about community, some of the things, and I'll, I'll just touch on this briefly because you, you did mention that a lot of us have gone through challenges, but, you know, we didn't have sports or theater or assemblies or family festival, all those things that make school fun. Um, yeah. You know, it became very academic. Um, even when we were in person and we can, so I'm also the head of grade at my school. So I take a cohort of grade sixes all the way through, through grade eight. Right. And this cohort that I've been kind of leading um, has had none of those things, their entire middle school experience. Mm. And so when I compare them to the cohort I had before, there's just some things they haven't learned. Um, and, you know, whether it's on outdoor ed trips or service trips or things like that, um, so you, you, re you recognize the value. I just, I always keep saying, I wish someone did like an action research project so we can like quantify <laughs> these things that are so anecdotally obvious. Yes. Um, so yeah, the challenge is, I think we've been lucky by most standards, um, but you know, we've missed a couple of key things that make our school, our school. In terms of positives, yeah. I mean, I guess at any given day, it makes you realize the, the resilience and flexibility of institutions and teachers and kids. Mm -hmm of how you know we came up with different ways to engage classrooms online and you know I'm, I'm sure there was a million top five things to do to keep kids engaged you know you can anyone can google any of those things but to be able yeah. to kind of create them and create those spaces um yeah. just shows that um kids want to learn at the end of the day no matter how much they complain no matter how hard it seems they want to be there they want to be together they want to see their teachers and they want to engage in learning um, so even after an 11 week stretch of circuit breaker where we were all kind of losing our minds, they, sh you know, kids show up. And I think that's something to value that, that need to kind of be together and socialize and to learn. Yeah, fantastic. I, yeah, so what, what was positive, I think, if I was going to sum it up, it would be that idea of, you know, you don't take that for granted. And when you, when you do come back together, you remember how important being in that space is for people and you try to make sure that you don't take it for granted and waste it you know yes yeah i love that and and because that's something that i guess as adults um you know we, we get told a lot of things when when we're young you know you know the wonders of being young make the most of it and then when you get old you're like oh yeah <laughs> that was true and, and and it's almost like the 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 children that have gone through the sort of pandemic are being told that a lot earlier and experiencing it as well so that that, that I guess is a positive that comes from that and I think also you know a couple of things it does show also the 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 experiences that were had by by all students parents who are, who are trying to teach students at home as well um that teaching you know the teaching profession the jobs are, are very 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 safe <laughs> i think that uh, um when you look at sort of institutions over 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 time you know your your bakers and your butchers uh, sort of don't exist so much in this you know but the, the the buildings and the people that do still exist are um our teachers they sort of stood the test of time and there's always going to be a need for us and it's not just the academic aspect it's the as you said the, the the creative aspects the drama productions the 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 human interaction the interface you know between person and person and you know you mentioned that you've got that whole cohort that have missed out on those things how does that how how does that um sort of manifest itself so how do you like you said you know, you've got the anecdotal evidence to show oh this the, these students haven't done this for a couple of years how are you seeing that um sort of play out to the, to those students then yeah, I mean, I think it's, 
you learn so many people skills and collaboration skills and conflict resolution skills by camping with your friends for three days mm. on an outdoor trip or yep. by negotiating how to rehearse for a, a production or a play. You know, like there's all those things that mm. we, we just take for granted. But especially at that age, at, at early adolescence and middle school, they don't know how to do those things necessarily. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And so when they're yeah. kind of in their rooms on Zoom or in a Discord chat, yelling and screaming at each other, they're not necessarily learning those soft people skills. Mm. And so I see a lot of, not a lot, but there's definitely more conflict now that we're back together. There's a level of immaturity that I see in grade eights that I normally wouldn't see because they haven't gone through that. Right. They haven't yeah. had those experiences. And I think you can't take for granted the the kind of down the collective downtime that students have together without kind of deliberate adult interaction <laughs> yeah right and yeah those, no, absolutely those things are so important and i think even like you know i don't know how old you are but when i was a kid we spent a lot of time as a 13 year old with other 13 year olds without adults around yeah yes i think there's such value in that and it was limited to begin with even when the best of circumstances like a place like singapore where so many of our students' lives are kind of curated by their parents, it's hard enough to do that. And then when they couldn't do that at all, like physically, um, I think there was a big impact of that. Yeah, that makes that makes a heck of a lot of sense what you're saying. And I'd often, I'd actually go as far as to say that that's not necessarily something which has been kind of uh, forced upon as a result of the pandemic, but also sort of technology has had something to play with that as well, hasn't it? You know, the fact that, you know, we're we are reducing the amount of those face-to-face -face interactions and those social skills being built as a result of a lot more things going online now and a lot more interactions happening as a result of, uh, of that. So a bit of a mixture of those two, a double whammy, if you will. And I don't know if this is like global or just here, but it's mm. that that sense of like, you know, I'm going to take my kids to ballet class and then I'm going to pick them up and they're going to go to math tuition and then I'm going to drive them to, mm. you know, football practice. It's that yeah. sense of everything is dictated. There's not yes. that level of independence uh, and freedom that I think kids need to kind of figure yeah. things out. I, I, I would have been, would have been in trouble when I was younger if I got back before it was dark, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was expected for me to get back after dark and you know, get out from under the feet of mom and dad. But now my sort of daughters, um, you know, even if they're just down the road, you know, we, we're there keeping an eye on it. So the world, uh, keep, keeping an eye on them. So the world definitely is a, it's a different place as a result. And, uh, and yeah, it's interesting how we're, how we're kind of picking up some of those, the, the impact of, of, of how that, the world has changed. Um, so in, talk, in terms of things changing, following the, what, what we've all experienced over the last couple of years, um, could I ask you to kind of think about some of the aspects of teaching and learning that you think will, will have changed um, for good or will never be the same again? Um, one thing I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about things that have changed is, I know, you know, in the early days we were talking about the excitement of like, MOOCs and blogs and you know this is the end of brick and mortar schools and mm. everything is going to be online I think this was a bit of a wake-up call at least for me that if that is where we're heading which I don't think we are I, I still very much value the physical spaces mm. it has to be something radically different because I think for me we took traditional kind of brick and mortar curriculum and then tried to make it online and then realized yeah this is not great it doesn't work <laughs> right yeah. like mm. and so I think it was a, a wake up call of what that looks like, what it could or could look like. 
And also just depending on age. Again, I think a lot of that, hey, everything is going online, um, definitely might be applicable to upper high school or university and stuff like that. But I don't know um, if the kids that I teach necessarily have the organizational skills or the wherewithal to work that independently. Or if they did, it would have to be a program that's designed based on their engagement. Mm. Right. It would have to be a radically different program. But I think one thing that was a wake up call was that technology doesn't make a traditional curriculum more interesting. Yes. You're right. Just because you're at home and on Zoom or you're able to work independently or on Google Docs or whatever people are doing, Mm. if it's still kind of this traditional, you know, do this, do this, do this to get this grade, it's not that much, it's not any more exciting. Mm. So I think that's a good wake up call for us to have. Yeah, and it suits. I think we found we've all found that kind of gap is widened in a number of cases because that style actually does suit some people, um, but not all. Um, mm. And obviously, the point of education is that it is that as best as possible that even playing field access to, to education for everybody. And um, and yeah, and I would say as well from my own personal experience of sort of doing qualifications online as well or doing IB training online, it's it's a complete different kettle of fish, and and, and you need you need that that human interaction. To, to to bounce ideas and to build um, d- discussions and and you know what comes out of your mouth isn't necessarily always the your final thought you know you, whereas the written word the typed word if you're in a chat room etc is is curated isn't it before you send it um, so so losing that kind of dynamic uh, relationship in, between two people or a group of people is something which is um, yeah I, I think something I don't know. Ha- ha- we need we need to try to, to 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 stoke the coals of that, don't we, and keep that going somehow. Yeah, it's it's thinking about myself as an adult learner, like you said, going through master's courses and things like that. There is a level of independence that feels efficient and expedient, mm-hmm. but it's definitely lonely. Yes, right? it's a lonely way to learn, and yes. so being on a Zoom call with twenty other people doesn't alleviate that. That's I think one thing we've discovered it almost accentuates it in a certain uncomfortable way, right? So it's, if we are gonna be learning, quote unquote, whatever we're gonna call that in a kind of expedient academic sort of way, fine. But that's not necessarily the only kind of learning. I don't think that's the kind of learning that happens in a grade eight English class. Sure. Or it's not the kind of, it's not the kind of learning I would like to happen in my classroom. That's just a side effect. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Like we happen to do that thing and we learned and we passed and we wrote that essay, great. The real learning is those people skills. It's that community. It's that sense of, we don't know what we're going to learn. This is the lesson plan, but we might have a conversation or someone might say or do something that's going to really be the thing we remember 30 years from now. Yeah. Those things can't be taken for granted. And that, and that feeds into that discussion of sort of, it, it's not really a discussion. It's just the, 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 the ever, um, ever evolving argument of, of knowledge versus skills and the difference between the two, et cetera. But, but, I think whether it be knowledge or skills, let's not, we won't unpack that at all now. Um, but you, ultimately it's preparation for life, for life, isn't it? That's sort of education. Education never ends and it is, edu- it is preparation for life. And whether that be building those social interactions, et cetera, or building those ways in which we approach a particular argument or conflict or something, that's, that, that's what we're kind of working towards in the classroom, isn't it? Whether it's based on knowledge or not. Yeah, and I think the third part of the curriculum that you, you kind of left off, there's knowledge, skills, and then understandings is the key one, right? So mm-hmm. I think knowledge and skills are relatively easy to learn in that model that we just talked about, the kind of lonely, expedient, online. You can, you can do that pretty well. 
it's those understandings that sometimes um, take that social, collaborative, long-term, deeper learning. And I yes. think um, yeah. I've had a hard time getting kids to buy into to that level of learning online. And personally, I've had a hard time getting it. Mm. Yeah, that kind of, that, that collective critical approach to certain things, mm. hearing different viewpoints and different dispositions about certain things. You know, you can formulate your own opinions and ideas from the knowledge and the skills to you blue in the face, but until you, you know, uh, are able to look at things from multiple perspectives, et cetera, and hear other people's views, that kind of, that leaves a bit of a, bit of a gap, as you said. Listen, Jimmy, that's absolutely fantastic to kind of sort of uh, sort of peel back the onion scheme there of, of, of sort of all about you and, and, and how things have sort of uh, happened over the last kind of five, 10 years, et cetera, in education. Um, we're going to take a, a news break just now and before we sort of dive into looking a little bit more um, in detail at your experiences with service learning. So we will be back in two minutes. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. New research conducted by the education charity Magic Breakfast has shown a patchwork of free school breakfast provision is leading some children to come to school hungry. The charity has called for an urgent £75 million funding boost for school breakfasts in England and a similar amount from the Scottish Government. Currently, Wales is the only UK nation with a country-wide, centrally funded free breakfast provision. The NAHT School Leaders Union General Secretary Paul Whiteman said, We agree that more funding is urgently needed to combat child hunger and that improving breakfast club provision for pupils could be an important part of that effort. Hunger is a real concern for school staff who regularly see children arriving in the morning without having eaten and therefore not ready to learn. Research carried out by Early shows that 97% of UK schools monitored in the Let School Breathes project experienced levels of PM2.5 that exceeded the safe norms set out by the World Health Organisation. Early started installing air pollution sensors in schools across the UK in April 2021. A spokesperson for Early said, Pupils are exposed to high concentrations of NO2 and PM2.5, mainly during travel to school and in school playgrounds. Early's outdoor monitors have been positioned in such a way to be able to determine what kind of air students breathe when they are near the school building. Thanks to the data we have collected, we know the situation is far from perfect, but the first step towards pollution-free schools has been made. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
live from Qatar. This is the morning break with Dorian Brown on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Friday morning break on Teachers Talk Radio. I am Dorian and I'm joined in the studio here with Jabiz. We have just been uh, speaking about the history uh, of the last 10 years uh, of, of Jabiz's experience um, and thinking about the, the journey in which uh, we've gone through in the last, particularly in the last couple, uh, sort of couple of years during the pandemic, uh, and this idea of building this sense of community. And I think perhaps I was thinking sort of in the news there that maybe the, 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 the pandemic has gotten in the way of this sense of community. But I think as Jabiz also said uh, in, during our discussion, it has there has been some positives as well that have helped us kind of build sort of tighter communities as well. So in a kind of a, a segue, I guess, from that, let's let's now turn our attentions to, to, to service learning. So we've talked in, in, in previous shows about global citizenship and we've talked about the importance of service learning and how, uh, you know, that experiential aspect of it uh, is, is vital, um, but also how there perhaps maybe can be some limitations to service learning if, with it being as part of a, an embedded uh, curriculum. So um, I'm going to open up the, the, the first question uh, for you, Javiz, on this and say um, I, I've noted that you've got a degree in creative writing. And we've already talked about your, your, your personal blog as, re, as well, but it really does showcase how proficient you are in, in, in getting those thoughts down onto, onto the page. There was a, a poem that you wrote back in 2018 called Service Is. Um, now, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fairly long reflection about what service is. Uh, wondered if you might be able to just in a, in a nutshell summarize what, uh, why, what you feel service is and why you think it's important. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a complicated topic I think that people misunderstand and misuse a lot of times I think in the simplest way just trying to think of that poem now is kind of leaving whatever situation you enter better than it was before you were there that's a lovely way of putting it yeah um but even a term like better is subjective and problematic yes right so we really want to think about it on a deep level is better for who like is it my understanding of what's better from the other you know person's point of view because i think a lot of times what i feel is problematic with service learning especially for young people at international schools i mean mm. that's my context yes is these students are coming from a relatively privileged situation and they're going in to help people who they deem as underprivileged and so a lot of times I think that that's where the problems arise, right? So if, and I don't know if the way we operate, we have a capacity, again, going back to trust and community to build relationships with people that we're working with. And notice how I'm not saying helping um, as a way to determine what better means for all parties involved. So I think traditional service programs are we are going to help those people and make their lives better by giving them X, Y, Z. And I think the yeah. worst thing is we're going to give them some money, but that's, that's usually how it is. As opposed to um, we're going to work with a group of people to figure out what we need to do to make both our situations better in the way that we name them. 
So I think recently I've been doing a lot of reading and work on DEIJ, so diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Mm. And it's really kind of opened my eyes to, yeah, concepts like privilege and positionality. And um, even if we're going to get technical, like, you know, post-colonial ways of thinking about the world and mm. um, all of those things. And so often service programs are, like you said, these kind of privileged kids who have to do something yeah. for some kind of cast tick or some kind of checklist. Mm. And they go in and have relatively superficial surface level experiences. Now, some kids definitely are, they click and they get it and they, they build that empathy and they understand what's happening. Um, but I think for the most part, I don't know how many kids have that, that experience. So recently I've been thinking, you know, can we do true authentic service work without first equipping students with an understanding of post-colonial politics, um, privilege, positionality, um, how does power work? You know, like you go into any, any environment that's underdeveloped or something like that, like you have to have a basic understanding of why it's like that. Because yes. if you just think like, oh, these people are so poor and oh, their, their lives are so hard. Mm. And I have no idea why or how you know, exploitation has led to that. Then I'm going to have a very different interaction with those people. Yeah. So yeah, sorry, I don't know if I went on a tangent. No. I can start and sort of go pretty fast, but it's it, it's it's great to say this is service learning. We're doing it. We all feel good about ourselves. Isn't this yes. great? But if we truly are trying to meet those, you know, global citizens and all the dispositions that we say are so fantastic, mm. we have to do it right. We have to do it slow, and we have to do it deep. Yes. Um, you absolutely didn't go off on a tangent there at all. You, everything that you were saying there was just kind of nodding along because um, you, in my, you know, in my interpretation is, is rather similar. And I, I think that over time as well, that's the uh, people's approach to service has changed. And I think it has improved and it has developed. And, and whether that be in an international school context or actually in uh, state schools, um, I think there has been a significant shift away, moving moving away from the the, the negative connotations associated with charity. So so moving from charity to service, and as you said, you know, leaving something better when you found it. But again, challenging the you know the interpretation of what better means. And if you haven't got that knowledge and understanding of 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 what has led to the injustices, the disparities, the the what has led to the, to the situation that people uh, are in, then how can you know really how that you have made that situation better right so so i think i know i know the the yeah i, I, don't, I don't work in the ib anymore but but um you know it was always about i you know the first step was to identify a need in the first place so rather than kind of kind of rocking up and saying well we're going to give you this or do this you need to have that kind of authentic exploration of what of is there what what the need what, what what the need is but also if there is a need in the first place you know do you need 25 international school students coming in to do something and where's the where's the where's the ethic where's the ethical sort of element of that and where's the value of that and and it does need to be mutually beneficial like 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 you said at the end there that has to you know service has to has to result in in the lives of both parties for one for a better word uh, to be um ameliorated yeah enhanced by by someone but but like you like you hit the nail on the head there by saying you've got to be that that's a very um 
it's a thin line, isn't it? Um, between b- between that and and yeah, I don't, I, and putting it in an, in an academic, um, putting it as a mandatory thing is an academic context. I think is problematic, and I think that what you said, which really made me kind of think hard about that, was that building that knowledge and understanding before you actually even get to that. Uh, the, the actual action um you know we've I've often been on 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 the shows that I've done extolling how valuable and important it is to experience the 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 differences and you you get the students that have those aha moments when they realize that just because of geography their lives are completely different to someone else but rather than go there and get that aha moment how about work out <laughs> why that is the case in the first place before actually doing it. and then you're you're you, you've got a greater understanding um of uh, and it's less aha and more mm-hmm, right yeah and i think i don't know something that's that's challenging for me personally having done this kind of work for for a long time is and i don't know what the kind of psychological definitions of what i'm ex- about to explain are but right. a lot of times we we do this work to kind of assuage our own guilt right? Mm-hmm. It's this sense of, I live a, a privileged life internationally, I can travel, I can do all these amazing things, so that I must give back and help. And But so, if we really kind of burrow down deep, where's the impetus of that? Is it something that is kind of born out of guilt, and that we, mm-hmm. we don't know, and we, don't, we can't name, and we call it empathy, and we call it these things? And so these levels, and I'm a, a grown adult who's, you know, studied this stuff and been doing it for lots of years. Like I was a 14, 15 year old mm-hmm. expected to deal with that, you know, like, yeah. um, and I think these things are tricky. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is, and I, you know, my really good friend from high schools, he started an all girls school in Kenya called Daraja. So I'm going to plug Daraja Academy here. Okay, uh, maybe you can put the link down in the, the bio notes, but it's Will been do. kind of my passion project for, for years. Right. And I brought it to UWC. And before the pandemic, we would take trips there and go to Kenya and, you know, have the whole experience. And mm. we haven't been able to go because of the pandemic. But I think that's that coupled with my kind of awakening of DEIJ has made me really think about, you know, what do we do when we go there? Like, mm. what's the purpose of getting in an airplane and flying to Kenya to do this work? Yeah. So much of it is the things our kids learn, like our kids learn so much. We're not really bringing much there, yes. you know, like yes. we're not really helping there. So if that's the case, then, you know, what, what are we doing in order? Like, is that valuable enough? Is that, is it fair to use that as a springboard for our kids learning, which is a question I'll kind of leave out there, mm. but and then we have these kids and they go and they have these amazing experiences and they learn a lot about, you know, empathy and all these things that we want them to learn. But then when they come back, their behavior hasn't necessarily changed. Right. So it's, it's that sense of, you know, I think that that was kind of the impetus of that poem you mentioned is that service is how you treat people every day. Mm. Right? It doesn't have to be this, you know, outward kind of showing of benevolence. Right, like you're saying, it doesn't have to be this charity. Look at me doing this work. It has to be just the way that we interact with each other every single day. Um, and so, I don't know how we teach that. I think it's just like constantly over and over again. It's it's how we parent, right? It's how we we raise kids. Yeah. And we just hope that they kind of they get it. And I don't know if that necessarily a formal kind of <clears throat> tick boxy service program 
It, I don't think it always necessarily hurts that. I think it, it's going to help, but I don't know if that's what's necessary for get, to get kids to understand. Um, and again, it kind of comes to the golden rule, right? Like treat people like you want to be treated. Like it's, yes. it's as simple as that. It's just being, being a, a human, a global citizen. It, it does kind of come down to that almost. And, and actually, as well as in school, the, the, the same um, approach and attitude is actually taught through religion as well right so you know islam christianity all, all of the sort of religions do 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 teach the importance of you know looking after each other um and being empathetic and and and, and helping people and so um yeah it, it feels strange that it's something which is which is impressed or or, or um mandated uh, as part of a of a of an academic curriculum, but perhaps maybe as you highlighted, if, if people are born into this kind of life of privilege and they don't get to see the, the injustices and the, the effect that, you know, uh, the effect on the environment, effect on people, et cetera, that many things are happening, then, then, then we do need to level the playing field and we do need to expose people to the, to, to the, to the, to the big bad world, right? Yeah, and another thing, again, I don't expect necessarily kids to come to this level of understanding because it's taking me nearly 50 years um, to kind of come to terms with it myself but I already mentioned um, a little bit of that that guilt like the, the root of where why we want to kind of do these things but I've always kind of contemplated and been thinking a lot about this idea of sacrifice I think that has something to do with service learning as well um, and again it's not monetary you know I'm going to give up but it, it's when you come to a situation when you realize the injustice and inequality and exploitation of the world the way it's set up and you fly in and fly out mm. really what have you done besides you know it's release a load of carbon yeah yeah <laughs> yes right? so it's like and i don't know if it's fair i don't i'm not saying that service learning needs to make kids feel guilty and force them to sacrifice that's that's a little bit too heavy for i think teenagers but for me personally, it's what are the things I'm willing to sacrifice in order to level the playing field? And I kind of know what they are, but at the end of the day, I don't always choose to do them. And yes. I think that's that's a very hard place to be as a human being because you're, you have a certain lifestyle and you have a certain set of things that make your life move. Yes. And if you really you know, want things to change, you have to sacrifice something whether it's your time or your energy or your focus, or, you know, maybe instead of taking that trip to Thailand with your family, you do something different, you know, like those yeah. are the things that are hard for people to get around. And our international school kids, yeah. you know, they're coming from an environment where their parents aren't necessarily thinking that way, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, it's hard to put kids in that situation to say, you have to kind of think this way to have service learning be effective. And that, but having said that, we do a lot of service, sorry, just we do some service learning stuff at our school that is campus-based. Um, we have kids like in the gardens. We have local schools that come to our campus. We play games with them. Like it doesn't all have to be this, um, what was that term that came up a couple of years ago? Like where people would go places and take selfies of themselves like that. Kind oh, of um, yeah. Uh, something tourism. Uh, yeah. So, like, so, uh, what is that term? Yes. I'm, I'll, I'll but you know what I mean, right? Like kind of showing. I mean, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It doesn't all have to be that. And I think, you know, schools do themselves harm when they fall into that rut of kind of showcasing what they do in that way as well. So I think that's something to be avoided.
totally and i'm just thinking of uh, there was a uh, i think there was an ed sheeran incident like that wasn't there about kind of being photos sort of putting things up on in instagram and social media sort of showing what showing what they're doing and how they're getting involved and everything and sort of falling off falling off the back of it i think the um, if we can get in a position, if we are teaching uh, service learning, if that's the right kind of way of phrasing it, if we can get into a position where students reflect upon their decisions themselves and then make that call, you know, if, it, if the choice is to, to, to fly somewhere and do something or do something local, um, then if rather than us tell them that that's the right way of doing it, if we can teach them, give them the knowledge so that they can kind of come to that conclusion themselves that yes, I could do that. However, doing this is my better, is, is hopefully what we, what we should be we working towards, allow the students to kind of make that decision. Because like you said, in international community, um, it's, not, it, it's not necessarily always the most um, clearest or, 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 or clearest choice or clearest option that students have. Um, and, you know, an argument might be said that there are certain countries, certain places where people live, where actually, you know, poverty isn't necessarily on the doorstep or the, the, the immediate need uh, or to, to, to be met isn't always obvious, right? Um, and so in some cities, um, that's it's completely obvious and therefore there is absolutely a justification for making sure that all service happens as, as local because you've got that need locally. But perhaps in places where it's, it's, it's a little bit more hidden, we either have to Go, go go further afield or or you know teach on how to identify more more hidden needs if you see what i mean yeah but i think it's interesting like again singapore is a great example of the second situation you just described mm. but again i think you're falling into the trap of thinking of service learning as needs and poverty right mm. like why does it have to be something that's directed towards poverty why can't it be other ways of you know yeah finding different needs. So I know like our students, for example, are heavily invested in LGBTQ rights and communities and ideals and things like that. Um, why not find out what's happening within our school with that or what's happening in the local community with that, right? It doesn't yeah. have to be, we're just searching for underdeveloped kind of poverty stricken areas to, to fix. Um, so that's what I was saying about that sense of it's, it's going away from what you were saying about that idea of charity, right? You can't, it's not a fixable. A lot of these situations aren't fixable. No, not small scale. Not small scale, right? So kids have to learn that, yeah, you can engage with this concept and this idea, but it's probably going to take your whole life and it's going to take that investment, right? It's going to take that sacrifice, it's going to take that time and energy, but you going on one trip and doing a couple of things because you have to is not going to fix whatever the thing is you think it's going to fix. And that's kind of a harsh lesson to learn early, but I think it's an important one because that's going to develop kind of that resilience and that fortuitousness of like, you know, I'm going to, this is going to take a long time. If I really care about, you know, the way women are treated in Kenya, I have to think about the way women are treated here. I have to think about the way women are treated in my classroom. And I have to kind of follow that for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years without potentially any kind of like pat on the back or yeah you did it <laughs> yeah is there a case though just to kind of just devil's advocate not devil's advocate but just kind of thinking it through that you know the, the poverty aspect is so visible and so prevalent and so um 
so yeah so visible i think is the, is the best word for that and yeah and and so that could be that kind of the way into eventually then become more uh empathetic and understanding of other further issues that perhaps maybe are less visible so um yeah it's it it, it it's tough because as i said if we're working with sort of privileged children um that almost seems to be their get that is their go to um sort of culturally almost as well and and i, and I know here in Cato, you know philanthropy or, or or giving to charity is something is is, is expected you know it's 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 and if they're passed if that's sort of passed from adults to children that you know if i give money then therefore that's it i've done my bit for charity you know it's uh it's problematic isn't it but it's it's a starting point for everybody in terms of in in, in terms of helping other people so a stepping stone if you will um so perhaps maybe if you're engaging in those initial um embryonic experiences of 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 of, of Again, avoiding the word helping there, of working with other people. Um, I've realized I'm digging myself into a hole myself with my own language there. Um, but I, I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to get at. It's just the fact that it's, it's, it's low hanging. Yeah, the, 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 the poverty area is that kind of low hanging fruit, which in international schools, it seems to be a very obvious um, starting point. Uh, and then on top of that, you can build further. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, like money goes a long way. Right. Again, thinking about the school I keep talking about in Kenya, like they yeah, when people donate money, it helps. It builds libraries, it brings in books, it gives sports uniforms. And yeah. those things are important. I think it's it's easy to give money because it's a disconnect, like you said. It's it's that kind of low-hanging fruit. It's the surface mm -hmm. level, it's the charity work. It doesn't take much. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think a lot of well, that's not fair. I was going to say, I think a lot of service learning programs, that's what they do. I don't know enough about service learning programs to make that comment. But I think if that's kind of a school's understanding of service learning, then they're doing things wrong. Absolutely. Well, fantastic. That That is, um, again, another fantastic chunk of discourse there. And there's so many different avenues that we could have kind of or, or, or places we could have gone off there. But uh, we're, we're going to have a quick break for the um, for the adverts. Uh, and then uh, another sort of if I can just keep you for another 10 minutes there, Jebbies, and we can kind of unpack a little bit more of what um, effective service looks like. So we'll be back in two. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, 
anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. Live from Qatar, this is The Morning Break with Dorian Brown. And welcome back to the Friday Morning Break. This is Dorian Brown and it, we have Jabiz in the studio here and another fantastic chunk of uh, discussion about the uh, the complications, I guess, the the, the 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 not the pros and the cons, but the kind of the, the complexities. I think that come along with um, service learning uh, in educational institutions, and and something I definitely take from that 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 second section there is that it is a it's a lifelong journey. I think service it isn't something that you just kind of develop and and, and learn and develop at school and then suddenly become you know someone who's just completely in tune with their with, with um uh the, the, the virtues of service it's something as Jabez has kind of articulated really well there something that you just tussle with for the rest of your life almost it sounds right and and different experiences kind of uh shape and, and carve um uh your your your, your ideals um so we'll, we'll come back uh sort of two service learning projects again, but I just wanted to see if there was a bit of a, a correlation between pandemic and service learning. Uh, in, your, in your community, how did they change when the, the, the pandemic hit uh, and all of that face-to-face -face service learning was lost? So how, how, was the, how was your school or community able to still kind of do service for, one, for a very crude expression um, uh, whilst, whilst the restrictions were in place? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think the idea of doing service could be an entire show that we can run. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, but our school, so just to kind of put a bit of context, we're we call ourselves a five element school. So it's academic, personal, social education, outdoor education, activities, and service. And none of those are extracurricular. It's that's the curriculum, and they're meant to be all equally um, weighted. Mm. Um, so I would say the pandemic had probably the least effect on academics mm. <laughs> uh, and the other ones took a pretty big hit. So outdoor ed activities were okay, I think, but service as well. So our service department is also broken down into kind of different components. We have college level, local, and then global concerns. So college level would be things that happen on campus. Usually they're kind of aligned with environmental stewardship and things like that. 
local are, we go to different uh, organizations in Singapore or they come to us. And then global concerns, we work with several NGOs within the region. And then Kenya, like I mentioned, is the farthest afield. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of college service, it had zero impact. Uh, once we were back on campus, we can do all the things that we, we could do on campus. Local uh, made it challenging because we weren't able to go to the organizations and they weren't able to come to us. And I don't know enough about what happened there to know how they did things differently because that wasn't kind of my area. So for our global concerns, yeah, like my trip, the one I, I was just talking about where we went to Kenya every year for four years, we didn't go for the last two years. Um, and when we met as a group, we had to, our connection was strenuous at best with Kenya because <laughs> they're so far away. Mm. So that became almost non-existent. Um, some of the other institutions that we work with at UWC are in Cambodia and Bali. Um, and again, I'm not so sure what those relationships are like, but I can assume that they were pretty disconnected. Mm. So for me, what our group worked on was really unpacking issues that were important to the kids that were somewhat related to the issues that Daraja, the school, deals mm -hmm. with. So things like gender equality, uh, women's rights, um, period destigmatization, racism. Uh, those are things that our kids were really interested in. So yeah, service learning, I, I don't say this in a way, this doesn't sound super attractive, but it became like another class, right? It, it took a bit of an academic tone. And I know that sounds kind of yucky for lack of a better word, but it's actually been really good because it's allowed us to move away from, you know, the bake sale and the fundraiser. And a lot yeah. of times we would spend lots of time trying to make the campus aware of our service and maybe raise like 700 bucks. Like that, that would be a year's worth of work in the past. And then maybe we'd go on a trip and have a great time and learn a bunch of things. Right. But for the last two years, it's really been, yeah, we took a deep dive on racism and anti-racist work. So I brought my passion to DEIJ and our kids learned all the things we're talking about. Like what's the colonial history of Kenya? Right. Um, what's the, you know, how does power and privilege work? How do microaggressions operate in our campus? How might they operate in Kenya? What's the racist historical past of you know, colonialism in Sub-Saharan Africa? And we, we studied those things and we talked about them and we compared them to our own experiences of where we're from. So that's been one part of it. And then this, this year, half of the group is really interested in uh, period destigmatization. So they're working on seeing what the effects of kind of menstruation has on developing countries, particularly in Kenya, how it affects their education. And then they're raising awareness about um, things like that on our campus, trying to make one of the ideas they came up with. And this is all of them. Like, this is so cool, right? They realize that when girls at our school are in grade five and six, and when they first start their periods, it's really awkward and they don't have anyone to talk to. Mm. So they're starting to think about creating little care packages for fifth graders that have little notes and tips and tricks and kind of like a menstrual buddy that right. a, a middle schooler might be for them. So stuff like that, you know, and it's like, that to me feels like service and it's not going out there and, you know, and their original idea was let's, let's collect a bunch of tampons and ship them to Kenya. <laughs> yes. 
you know, so they, their ideas are there, but we said, hey, listen, like what's, what's the sustainability of that? What's the impact yeah. of that? What's the purpose of doing that? How do we know they need tampons? Like all these conversations for them to kind of back away and go, oh yeah, we can take that same concept and apply it to people that need it here. And this isn't poverty. This isn't high needs. These are the same girls that are from the same privileged class as they are, yeah. but it's service, right? Totally. And, and as I said, a lot of nodding going on there as well, because it just makes so much sense. And it harks back to what we were saying earlier, isn't it? About making sure that that knowledge and understanding, that real kind of, that deep understanding of, of why things are as they are, uh, in order to be able to kind of make the more um, lucid, um, deliberate decisions, which are going to result in, 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 outcome positive outcomes for all right um and I, and, and one, of, one of the things i'd scribbled down when you said there is that you know having not been to um africa sorry to um kenya for two years um uh how has what what has the impact been perhaps maybe of not going for two years has has life just con, con, continued um in daraja or uh has there been a palpable missing of uh, of of your uh, of your students for two years or, or how how's that kind of yeah, I mean, I think that's going to depend on institutions, right? And I think Taraja is lucky that they have kind of multiple schools and other, um, trying to think of the politically correct term to say here, other non-Kenyan groups that come to visit them, that it's not like a sister relationship where it's just them and us. And right. if it's a disconnect, they're wondering where we went. Yes, um, they had their own set of issues to deal with through the pandemic, and it's been a turbulent ride. Mm -hmm. I think it was one of those when we went, it was an authentic kind of beautiful connection. And it was hard to keep it going. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing, right? Their kids change, our kids change. Yes. So these relationships, yes, UWC and Daraja have been together for nine years. Mm -hmm. But how many people in either yeah. institution understand what that connection means? That's that, and that's and that's huge because it often feels that uh, you have this kind of revolving door of of of, of people coming from international schools to, to help, and you don't get that sustained relationship between uh, b between people in, in in both schools, like you said, as they're going through. So that that makes it that makes it quite difficult, doesn't it? But some things that do stick, you know. I mean, I don't want to be all pessimistic. Like I, there was a girl who in grade eight went on one of our Daraja trips. She has been the chair of the Daraja Global Concern Group all the way through high school. She's in grade 12 now. She by herself sponsors one of the girls, which is about $2,500 a year, so her and her family. Yeah. She's done amazing work running uh, the Daraja Global Concern in high school. And I'll never forget when we were on that trip, she's like, I've seen what's happening here. I'm gonna start a school like this in India. Because wow. she's Indian, right? And like in eighth grade, she's like, I'm doing it. And like, oh, we were like, yeah, you know, it's hard. And she's like, no, I'll do it. And like after four years, there's not a doubt in my mind that she will go to India and start a school. Wow, and fantastic. she's learned, you know, but, you know, a student like that is one in 500, you know, it's. Yeah, but, but you've still got to, but you've still got to kind of facilitate, you've still got to kind of facilitate yeah. that for that to happen almost, you know, and the impact, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, if I say, if one person, if I, if I'm able to get one of those out of X amount, then it's, then it seems worth it. Right. In, in that regard, because of the, the paying it for the, 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 the residual kind of benefit that it's going to bring to, to people upon people after that. And I think that links very nicely to what I was sort of moving on to ask for this, this last little bit of the show. And that was, and, and again, it's super difficult uh, because 
it's there's not there's not it's not a black and white answer uh, i wondered what you use as a way of measuring you know the optics that you use to measure the success or impact that service has had and uh, I, I i i ask it there because obviously the the example that you just gave was a, was a good illustration of that isn't it of actually making making you know having a student then make a decision and, and build the capacity within that student to be able to know and have the confidence that they even they are in grade eight grade nine um are, are confident that they're actually going to be able to do something like that so that must be a measure of something well where yeah this is this is really working um are there any other kind of things that you look for in terms of trying to measure how successful it is yeah no that's a really really important and great question i think we don't do enough of that right it's, you know, there's that idea of we, we assess what we value. And unfortunately, I feel like we only assess academics in most schools. Mm. And assessment is a bit of a dirty word where it doesn't need to be. I often think of assessment as things that we deliberately teach and then assess to see if it was learned, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just a, a quiz or that it's, it could be, we could assess service, mm -hmm. no doubt. Um, and I think we can use similar assessment tools that we use for anything, right? A bit of a pre-assessment. What do you know about this afterwards? What have you learned? Kind of going through that cycle. Mm -hmm. So um, having shared that story, I wish having been at UWC for nine years and working with Daraja, I would have had assessments or portfolio pieces along the yes. way to quantify and qualify the learning that's happened. I haven't done it because of a million logistical reasons. But I think for anybody who's thinking about uh, authentic, meaningful service learning program, some type of metacognition, some kind of portfolio, some kind of assessment cycle for kids as they go through it is really important. I know at our school, we work with um, a university in the US that help us do surveys for our outdoor ed program. Um, but that operates at a very high level to the point like I don't really know what the data is or what it's like a 10 year program that's happening, you know, at a very kind of theoretical level up here. But I think as a facilitator of any kind of service learning program, it would be a good idea to have kids reflect on what they're learning for sure. Yeah. And that and keyword, I think, that, yeah. Not just in a rote kind of like, oh, we did the thing. Here's, yes. you know, but I don't know what it looks like, but something long term especially when you start to recognize some of those students, like the one I just described, that's not just there for the tick box. Yes. And I think those people are really important to kind of monitor and make sure that we track kind of how and what they're learning. Something I remember from when I was a uh, sort of CAS coordinator in Jakarta was that the, um, the, the learning outcomes were really powerful to be able to help structure the CAS learning outcomes. You know, how, how, you know, how can we demonstrate that we're engaging with issues of global significance, for example? And, and what really was helpful at that time was using the SDGs as well. So the Sustainable Development Goals as being that kind of that, that hook to hang your, your experiences upon and say that this is, you know, what I'm in, in, immersed in here is is my bit is 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 our con our collective collaborative contribution to be a you know to to, to be more sustainable to uh, address gender inequalities you know so i i thought that as a, as you were saying that a means of assessment i think that you know you know the the cas that there is potential in the cas program to be able to kind of um 
have that framework is a good little good measure but i think also what you're saying as well is that it needs to be a little bit more a little bit less um box ticky as perhaps maybe that 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 could be so maybe we have to think about the various different ways in which those those thoughts and you know so thinking about rather than just kind of writing down reflections maybe we have debates maybe you, you have so you write your own blog you know there's there's all sorts of things and 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 data doesn't have to be numbers right data doesn't have to be numbers it can just be that kind of qualitative um feedback yeah and hearing you talk it's making me think about you know service and service this kind of learning that we're talking about can't kind of happen in isolation by itself right so things like SDGs and the way we, we think about sustainability and things like that can happen within our academic con context as well. Mm -hmm. right? And in those places, they're already being kind of assessed. So that's that's also a connection. Yes. And that, that, that that's nice because that's where you know, climate crisis, COP26, everything all comes in because there's now much more of a kind of an impetus now to make sure that those, you know, climate science, et cetera, is taught more explicitly and early and much more earlier as well in curricula so that um that understanding is built sooner and therefore the the solutions or perhaps maybe the approaches when you get to middle school and high school uh, are based on that knowledge and understanding that that, that we've mentioned uh, previously um let's have some sort of looking at the time and we've unfortunately despite you know me having a load of other questions i'd love to to, to probe away um we do have to uh, end the show there so um i just wondered if first off uh, but before we do um if there was any uh, anything that you're looking forward to uh, or excited about for the next year anything that you wanted to share with the listeners or or, or and also perhaps maybe give us a give us something that we can uh, reach out how we can reach out to you if you wanted to speak more and and as i said we'll, we'll put the um uh, Deraj's link uh, in our show notes but yeah some, something that you're excited about over the next year first please to finish off yeah I, I don't know I one of those things that I, I think is true for myself and I kind of hope it's true for others I feel like I've been in a bit of a rut for the last two years um, mm. professionally personally artistically creatively all of those things right and so yeah. it does feel like I don't want to jinx us with another wave. <laughs> Please don't. We're starting to kind of go back to normal and things are opening up and travel. And mm. yeah, I'm just very much looking forward to kind of a, a bit of a, a rebirth yeah. coming back in August. Um, and just like I said, all those lessons that we've learned of not taking things for granted and being kind of grateful for being with kids and teaching and learning and going from there. I don't know specifically anything off the top of my head, but I'm definitely excited about yeah, just yeah. being deliberate and intentional with the work I do and not just kind of being in the grind. I feel like for the last two years, I've just been in this kind of grind and it's made me realize um, that's not fair to kids. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's, that's such a good reflection. I think there's a collective amen from the rest of the, the, the listeners there in that whole, in that whole, um, that whole thought process that, you know, we, we, we've gone through it and, and we just, we have to try to put some positive spin and try to kind of take, take the positives of what have happened over the last couple of years and really use those to kind of engender uh, uh, our, our, you know, how we move forward in education. And I think we have been fortunate in terms of, uh, you know, us experiencing this you know i know it sounds it doesn't sound great now but we're fortunate in the way that it does kind of it has developed our ad, uh, our 
flexibility, our, our adaptability, our, our, our dispositions, our, our thoughts, you know, and even if you haven't learned how to play the banjo in the last two years, which is <laughs> whatever, you know, you've had the, you've had the uh, uh, time to just kind of reflect and think about, uh, think about things and, 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 um, and yeah, and oh, fantastic. Listen, uh, Davies, thank you so much for spending time with us on Teachers Talk Radio today. Uh, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure listening to you and, and, and hearing about your passions. Um, Perhaps maybe I might even be able to tempt you back on the show in a couple of months again, and we can kind of riff a little bit more off of some of those fantastic points that you made. Yeah, I love it. It's like I said, I've been kind of a hermit in the cave for a while, so it feels good to be kind of back out here. And if people are interested in what we're talking about, I'm more than happy to talk about it. I could talk about this stuff forever, so Amazing. don't feel like it's emotional well, all the time. Well, I have got you on tape there saying that, so I will hold you to that. <laughs> yeah. Great. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you very much, everybody. And we will see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.